Hello and welcome to EG's annual Top 10 Property Cases of the Year podcast with me, Sarah Jackman. And me, Jess Harold. In what has now become customary, and to borrow the words from 2017 when we first published our Christmas Top 10, Jess and I have made our list, checked it twice, and whether you think they're naughty or nice, we've come up with our definitive ranking of the top 10 property law decisions of 2023. It's been a prolific judicial year with several themes emerging, one of which has been the steady flow of 54 Act cases, which include Man Limited versus Back in Time Diner Limited and GR Motoring Solutions Limited and another versus Gareth Sinclair Williams on Grand F Redevelopment. B&M Retail versus HSBC Bank Pension Trust and BMW UK Limited versus K Group Holdings Limited on the threshold for inserting a redevelopment break into a renewal lease. Avondale Park versus Miss Delaney's Nursery Schools on lease termination. And finally, Gill versus Lee's News Limited, which dealt with tenant fault grounds. Given the steady diet of 54 Act cases, it's perhaps little wonder that the Law Commission has announced its intention to consult on the Act, with a paper anticipated as early as possible in 2024. Perhaps the standout judicial development from 2023, though, and certainly the start of the year, has been the volume of property-related decisions from the Supreme Court. The justices came out of the blocks with a string of decisions in the early months and have carried on that momentum. A number of those decisions inevitably feature in our top 10, but such has been the prolific output of the Supreme Court that several of their judgments don't quite make the cut. Among them, and consoling themselves with honourable mentions, are Barton v Morris, a contract point on oral agreements, Secretary of State for Transport versus Curzon Park Limited and others, an important case on CPO compensation involving the hot-button topic of HS2, Day versus Shropshire Council involving public open land, Moolsdale, trading as Moolsdale Properties versus Commissioners of HM Revenue and Customs on the exemption from VAT of sales of land, and Rackison v Jepson, where the court found a rent repayment order cannot be made against a superior landlord. In another year, each of these cases may well have found a spot in our top 10, but not so in our hotly contested 2023 chart. Further demonstrating the importance of property law and its enduring appeal to the highest court in the land, decisions are awaited in Supreme Court appeals that we've been monitoring for possible inclusion this year are on the application of Finch on behalf of the Weald Action Group versus Surrey County Council and others, and the Manchester Ship Canal Company Limited versus United Utilities Water Limited, which must now surely rank among the favourites for a place in 2024's top 10. But that's a whole year away. Time now to concentrate on the big cases of the last 12 months. They're starting our countdown in earnest is our number 10 case, a Court of Appeal decision from June, which dealt with the property in a mixed-use development in Bermondsey, SE1. It is AHGR Limited versus Kane Laverack and another, in which the court had to determine whether the phrase live-work in a lease required leaseholders to live and work at the premises. The respondent leaseholders worked at the property as well as living in it, but did not operate a business from it. The appellant landlord brought proceedings for a breach of covenant initially in the county court where the claim was dismissed and it was held that the phrase meant live and all work. 
The appellant appealed, contending that the phrase live work in the lease required the leaseholders to live and work at the premises rather than being able to choose whether to live and or work there. The High Court agreed with the County Court's interpretation and dismissed the appeal. The appellant took the case to the Court of Appeal, which upheld the previous decisions and, in so doing, provided some judicial authority on how the courts might interpret such clauses. At number nine, a very recent decision given at the end of November, and one that, potentially, may even threaten the existence of future top tens. That may be exaggerating things a little, but it will be interesting to watch the implications of Churchill versus Merthyr Titfield County Borough Council play out, after the Court of Appeal ruled that courts can tell litigants to seek alternative methods of resolution rather than litigating their problems. The case involved a dispute between a Merthyr Tidville homeowner and his local council over the pernicious plant's Japanese knotweed, which Churchill claimed had encroached on his land and reduced its value. But the important finding is that the court can lawfully stay proceedings for the parties to engage in a non-court-based dispute resolution process, provided that the order made does not impair the very essence of the claimant's right to proceed to a judicial hearing and is proportionate to achieving the legitimate aim of settling the dispute fairly, quickly and at a reasonable cost according to Sir Geoffrey Voss, Master of the Rolls. With courts and tribunals underfunded and poorly resourced, and the costs of litigation always spiralling, will this lead to a spate of judges telling parties to talk it out? Writing for us this month, mediators Rupert Cohen and Jackie Joyce predict that it is reasonable to expect the volume of mediations to increase through court-ordered stays, and that, over time, it may become routine for judges to ask litigants why their claims can't be resolved by ADR. At eight the first of the Supreme Court decisions to make our 2023 cut. It is London Borough of Merton Council versus Nuffield Health Limited, a dispute concerning Nuffield Health's Merton Abbey Health Club complex. Nuffield Health is a registered charity and, as such, applied for an 80% reduction in non-domestic rates on premises that are used wholly or mainly for charitable purposes. However, the relief was withdrawn after a visit from the council because the inspector found the centre was not being used wholly or mainly for charitable purposes on the basis that its fees excluded less well-off residents of the borough. Nuffield challenged the decision and won in the High Court, which found that the health club was entitled to the discount. The council appealed the decision and later lost on a majority ruling in the Court of Appeal. The Supreme Court upheld the previous court's rulings and found that the health club operator is entitled to an 80% reduction in its rates bill, bringing welcome clarity both for charities and property owners. The court noted that while some charities are established for the relief of the poor, others are not, and that if a registered charity has multiple locations, the rich may be served in some locations and the poor in others. In yet other places, the rich and poor may both be served alike. In the seventh spot, Lazari Properties 2 Limited versus Secretary of State for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, a case involving the Grade 2 listed Brunswick Centre near Russell Square in London and the impact of the new and wide-ranging planning use class E, introduced in September 2020 in response to the pandemic's impact on the already beleaguered high street. While Class E introduces greater flexibility into the planning system, many properties remain subject to pre-existing planning permissions that contain conditions or obligations that limit owners' ability to fully benefit from Class E. This was true of the Brunswick Centre, with a 2003 permission stating that a maximum of 40% of the retail floor space in the centre was permitted for Class A2 and A3 uses. 
the owner sought a lawful use certificate to confirm that the whole shopping centre now fell within Class E, thus defeating the 20-year-old condition. However, in a judgment that will no doubt have disappointed other owners of retail premises in similar circumstances, the court rejected its claim and found that the owner remains bound by the condition. So, the much-trumpeted flexibility of Class E only applies to a point, and local authorities will not allow it to operate as some kind of free-for-all. If there has been one piece of legislation that has made its mark on 2023, it is the Building Safety Act 2022, which continues to make its presence felt, not least through secondary legislation. It is perhaps only right then that our number six spot goes to a case that relates to the Act. It is Weight and Others versus Kedai Limited, a decision from August in which the first tier tribunal issued the first known remediation order under Section 123 of the 2022 Act. One of the key questions arising from it was whether the case provided any guidance to assist developers, landlords and leaseholders in understanding the FTT's approach to Part 5 of the 2022 Act. Writing in the EG, Robert Bowker, barrister at Tanfield Chambers, and Pauline Lamb, senior associate at Russell Cook, said, If future decisions in the FTT follow this approach, developers, landlords and leaseholders can be reasonably confident that Part 5 of the 2022 Act, including applications under Section 123, will be treated as a self-contained code. The FTT's decisions will focus on outcome and, in order to achieve that outcome, the FTT's overall approach to cases is likely to be highly flexible. Although the first, it is likely that we will be reporting many more Building Safety Act cases in 2024 as claims relating to the Act work their way through the tribunal system and potentially beyond. Taking us into the top five, we have a pair of related planning cases. We are giving fifth place to Armstrong v Secretary of State for levelling up housing and communities, which came first. But it is necessary to take into account the subsequent decision in Test Valley Borough Council versus Fisk and another. Taking Armstrong first, it deals with the perennial problems relating to amendments of planning permissions and was felt to bring much needed clarity to a controversial area of law. Armstrong had planning permission for the construction of one dwelling, but wanted to dramatically change its design. First, he had to apply under Section 96A of the Town and Country Planning Act 1990 to add a condition to his planning permission requiring compliance with listed plans. Only then could he apply to vary this new Condition 10 and change some of the plans using Section 73 of the Act. Though he was successful in attaching the new condition, Cornwall Council refused to vary the plans on the basis that the proposed revised design completely alters the nature of the development, going beyond the scope of Section 73. Armstrong appealed unsuccessfully to a planning inspector, but found better fortune at the High Court, where the judge found that there is nothing in Section 73 limiting its scope to minor amendments or to amendments that don't involve substantial or fundamental variation. Writing for us in the wake of the decision, our regular planning commentators Catherine Hampton and Claire Dutch of Ashurst expressed their expectation that Armstrong will be added to the list of cases quoted at councils considering scheme amendments, and expressed the hope that it would calm any nerves around using Section 73 to achieve changes, even big ones. Their colleague Charlie Reed wrote subsequently that lawyers rejoiced at the High Court's judgment in Armstrong, but noted that the subsequent judgment in Fisk relating to a solar farm in Hampshire and the application of Section 73 had cast doubt on what was perceived to be newfound clarity. With the Fisk case heading for the Court of Appeal, fingers crossed what newfound clarity remains will be further elucidated, and that case offers another potential runner and rider for 2024's list. In its four is one of more 
In at four is one of the more recent Supreme Court decisions to feature on our list and involves the use of injunctions. It is Wolverhampton City Council and others versus London Gypsies and Travellers and others in which the Supreme Court approved the use of so-called newcomer injunctions by local authorities to stop gypsy and traveller communities from setting up unauthorised encampments on council land. It is a process through which local authorities have taken to obtaining high court injunctions against persons unknown, barring them from camping on local authority land without permission. The mechanism went unchallenged until 2020, when it was ruled that the court orders could only be granted on an interim basis, resulting in a series of injunctions being discharged. That initial ruling was overturned in the Court of Appeal, with the Supreme Court upholding that decision. Commenting on it for EG, Matthew Ditchburn, partner and head of real estate disputes at Hogan Lovells, said the confirmation given in that ruling is of major importance. This case marks the culmination of many years' evolution in the use of injunctions to stop trespassers. Confirmation that you can injunct basically the whole world from doing something that no one has done or even threatened to do yet is potentially a huge deal for property owners trying to protect their land not only against entry by travellers but also by protesters, urban explorers and the like. Even so, the Supreme Court has made it clear that these injunctions might be obtainable but the threshold for getting them is very high, he added. Despite that threshold, though, no doubt we will see more injunctions against persons unknown in 2024. Turning to the top three, we have one of that initial flurry of Supreme Court decisions that welcomed in 2023. Williams and others versus Aviva Investors Ground Rent GP Limited and another, in which the court, according to our expert legal note author Elizabeth Duomo, threw the traditional orthodoxy up in the air by finding that the first tier tribunal has no jurisdiction to determine the apportionment of service charges. It is common for residential leases to provide for the landlord to determine or vary the proportion of the service charge to be paid by each unit in the block of flats, rather than providing for a fixed percentage, and typical language tends to restrict those landlords to a fair or reasonable apportionment. Prior to Aviva, the orthodox understanding was that it was for the first tier tribunal or court to determine what was fair, so, in practice, typically a landlord would purport to make a determination and leaseholders might choose to challenge that apportionment at the FTT. In Aviva, the long leaseholders of residential flats within a mixed-use development in South Sea, Hampshire, had service charge provisions in their leases providing for those charges to be determined by a fixed percentage or such part as the landlord may reasonably determine. The tenants applied to the FTT under Section 27A of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985 for a determination of the reasonableness of the 2018 charges, with the key issue in dispute being the apportionment between the flats. The tenants argued that the landlord's contractual entitlement to determine an apportionment different from that stated in their leases was rendered void by Section 27A6 because it sought to oust the jurisdiction of the FTT. The Supreme Court acknowledged that Section 27A6 was an anti-avoidance provision, but found that the role of the FTT was limited to a review of the contractual and statutory lawfulness of the service charge demanded, which included reapportionment. The role of the FTT was not to determine the apportionment itself, and the contractual provision would only be void to the extent that it purported to oust the jurisdiction of the FTT by making the landlord or another third party's decision final and binding. Liz Duomo said that this means that, as long as the power of the FTT to review the contractual or statutory legitimacy of the same is not ousted, Section 27A6 will not bite. 
and that the decision would provide welcome relief and certainty to landlords and managing agents who carry out such a reapportionment exercises and make such discretionary management decisions. And more recently, Philip Rainey KC and Carl Fain wrote for us that Aviva is having a lasting impact on the way that the FTT decides service charge challenges, well justifying its position in our top 10. The penultimate spot goes perhaps inevitably to another Supreme Court decision, this time one from the early part of the year. Sarah and Hossein Asset Holdings Limited versus Black's Outdoor Retail Limited. The dispute between outdoor leisure retailer Black's and Sarah and Hossein Asset Holdings Limited concerned service charges and saw S&H lose in the High Court and win in the Court of Appeal. However, in a majority ruling read in summary by Lord Hamblin, the Supreme Court refused to back either side's approach. Instead, the Supreme Court arrived at its own resolution to a complicated dispute over excessive service charges levied on commercial tenants. Speaking of the decision in EG, Richard Kressel, a partner at law firm Gordon's, said the court's interpretation had struck a balance. He said the idea is to protect cash flow, allowing landlords to pay for services without allowing landlords to be entirely beyond challenge and a law unto themselves. You can see the policy behind trying to find a middle way here. For many, it will introduce a welcome balance, particularly for retailers already faced with ongoing financial pressures and increasing rents. Landlords, however, will look at the costs they already incur for the increasing number of vacant units and wonder whether their receipts can cover the cost of a possible new influx of rebate claims from tenants over service charge payments. And finally, we reach the top spot. And it's a case that's made it there like a Christmas number one from the good old days when the pop charts actually meant something. In 2019, it entered our rundown at number two following an eye-catching High Court judgment. It then dropped to 10th a year later when the Court of Appeal gave its more understated ruling. It did not appear in 2021 or 2022, thanks in part to some unusually long deliberations on the part of the Supreme Court. But on the 1st of February 2023, the final decision in the case arrived and it did not disappoint. We are talking, of course, about Fern and Others versus Board of Trustees of Tate Gallery, one of the most high-profile property law cases of the century, let alone just this year. The facts will, of course, be immensely familiar to anyone who has not spent the last four years hiding in a darkened room, perhaps behind their net curtains. The residents of glazed apartments at Neo Bankside objected to the viewing platform at the Tate Modern that drew thousands of visitors a year to enjoy panoramic views of London, including from one section straight into their homes. At the High Court, while the judge raised eyebrows with his finding that a breach of privacy could, in principle, found an actionable nuisance claim, he dismissed the residents' case on the facts, finding they had created or submitted themselves to a sensitivity to privacy. By purchasing apartments with floor-to-ceiling windows, something he described as a self-induced incentive to gaze. The Court of Appeal dismissed the residents' appeal and even stripped them of their Pyrrhic victory on the principle of the thing. It found that the overwhelming weight of judicial authority was that mere overlooking was not capable of giving rise to a cause of action in private nuisance. But the most blockbuster judgment was saved until last, as the Supreme Court allowed the Neobankside residents' appeal, thereby providing what James Souter, partner of Charles Russell Speechley's, described as a landmark moment extending the law of nuisance to protect against visual intrusion. The court found not only that the platform could constitute a nuisance, but that it did, 
in what Lord Leggett described as a straightforward case of nuisance. His lordship said, I suspect that what lies behind the rejection of the claim by the courts below is a reluctance to decide that the private rights of a few wealthy property owners should prevent the general public from enjoying an unrestricted view of London and a major national museum from providing public access to such a view. Expanding on his thoughts at the time, Souter pointed out that the Supreme Court had made it clear that the circumstances where the new law will be applied would be rare, and other commentators have sought to dampen any excitement that floodgates had in any way been opened. But a completely new freestanding cause of action in nuisance is still a completely new freestanding cause of action in nuisance, and that, plus the resulting publicity over the last four years, justifies Fern's place at number one. I should note that the long-running dispute finally came to an end in October, when the parties agreed terms under which the Tate Modern agreed to a restriction of use of the viewing platform, giving an undertaking not to operate the outdoor area of Level 10 of the Blavatnik building in such a manner as to enable visitors to Tate Modern to engage in intrusive viewing or photography of certain flats of Neo Bankside in the manner that had been held to be a nuisance in these proceedings. A sensible solution, no doubt, and one which the average person on the Clapham Omnibus, or indeed on the Tate Modern viewing platform, might well have concluded could have been agreed without the need for so many years of litigation, and the judicial attention of nine of our finest legal minds. But for our purposes, we're very glad it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and, at last, all the way to number one. And that concludes our 2023 Cases Review of the Year. All that remains is for me to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a very happy 2024. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from her. <laughs> <laughs>